This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, some of you listening may have at some point in your professional careers gotten a job offer from a company and then had to move to a new part of the U.S. Our next guest went several steps and I guess at least one flight, long flight, further. Frank Ahrens was a reporter at the Washington Post for 18 years. Then he got a job that job offer that he couldn't refuse. He became the director of global communications for Hyundai. And at that point was the highest ranking non-Korean executive ever for the company. He chronicles his time in South Korea, his experiences and his views on the economy and the business of Hyundai in his book, Soul Man, S-E-O-U-L. Frank joins us right now on the phone. Frank, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Great to have you. I I guess let's start with, okay, so you worked for the Washington Post for all those years and explain how you go from there to South Korea. Well, I always say that's what happens when you marry a diplomat. Uh, My uh, girlfriend at the time was was applying for the uh, U.S. Foreign Service, and she got uh, posted, her first posting, to uh, Seoul, South Korea, to the U.S. Embassy there, and we decided we would get married and and go together. The newspaper industry at that time, I was at the Washington Post, and that was the pre-Jeff Bezos era, and I covered the Washington Post as well as the publishing industry. I was a business reporter at the time, and I was reading the Post quarterlies, and I saw how things were going, and I figured that it was a good time to make a career change. Uh, And, you know, many journalists go into public relations. It's not an unnatural uh, transition. Uh, And um, I had about nine months to look for a job before uh, Rebecca, my wife, was posted to Seoul. And I started making a lot of calls, and one call led to another call and another call. And I found out that the, Hmm. at that time, current uh, head of global uh, PR for Hyundai Motor in Seoul was retiring. And so I sent my resume in, and bang, a few days later, I was interviewing with Hyundai, and and there it went. So you arrived there with your uh, then fiance uh, and, and wife, we got married before we okay, went over. Okay, so uh-huh. you did. So you got married. So you, mm-hmm. so you arrived there with your wife, and your first impressions of the country and working for this company are what? Well, it's interesting when you arrive in Seoul. Um, it looks like if you're familiar with large global cities. I mean, it's you know, 12 million people, and it's about 20 million in the in the metro area. So if you're familiar with large global cities, it looks from the air and from first go on the ground looks pretty familiar. Um, but we we had um we had several foreign service families who we get, became friends with, and one of us, our sponsors, said right away, "Welcome to Korea, the land of almost, not quite." And what they hmm. meant was. On first glance, to a Westerner, Korea can seem and Seoul can seem very familiar, and it seems like a big city you've been in before, but then everything is not quite the same. And it's right. these little not-quites that sort of compile and, and, and compound on you and can lead to some, in, uh, some uh, initial frustration as you try to uh, navigate the differences. So how do you, how do you uh, kind of capsulate the, the, the culture of working for Hyundai, which... Uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a well-known brand now. Right. So uh, corporations are, by their na- nature, have been traditionally, uh, typically hierarchical. That's just how they are. Uh, but then when you go to East Asia, to uh, Korea, to Japan, to China, you layer on uh, Confucianism on top of, or maybe even better saying, underlying it all. Mm-hmm. And Confucianism is, um, 
is a way of ordering society. It's obviously based on the, the late, great, um, ancient uh, Chinese philosopher Confucius. And it was about ordering society and created a very strict hierarchy in society uh, based on birth, based on gender, based on age. Um, respect for elders translates to respect for superiors. There is always a superior and a junior in every relationship. Sometimes you're the superior, sometimes you're the junior. Uh, and so you have to learn what it means to work in a Confucian uh, culture. And um, you, uh, you apply Confucianism on top of a, a typical uh, hierarchical corporate structure, and then you've got you know, extra hierarchical things you have to deal with. And for somebody who came from a newsroom, a newspaper yeah. newsroom, which is horizontal at best and anarchal, a- anarchy on another at worst, yeah. it was a, a whiplash for me to have to, to learn to deal with it. You you put in the uh, in the inside of the book jacket, uh, and I'll let you kind of describe it uh, even further. Formal by day, crazy by night, Asian business world. Uh, right. I, I, I'll let you kind of describe uh, what crazy by night meant. Well, so in the in the U.S. and the West, we we have even in in our. Even in big corporations, they're not, they're not the most strictly formal. And right. the way you behave at work is not terribly different from the way that mature, grown-up adults behave outside of work. Well, in a Confucian culture in Korea and at Hyundai, it was literally night and day. So daytime, in, in, in an American newspaper, I was used to being sort of – it's sort of an, an atmosphere of bonhomie, and you walk around, and you trade gossip with people, and it's you know conversations back and forth. Well, the, the Hyundai um, – office that I was in was pretty quiet. I mean, people were diligently sitting at their desks and doing their jobs. And if there were meetings, they were about work only. And you're not encouraged to sort of stand around and gossip and talk about non-work functions because when you're at work, you're at work. So that was the daytime. But then at nighttime, uh, it's just letting the dam break loose because there's so much pressure during the daytime. It's kind of the classic work hard, play hard culture, you know, <laughs> idea that, that, that we have in the West, except even more so. Uh, and so you have the, the typical evening has round one, round two, round three, and so forth. And round one is a dinner, a Korean barbecue dinner with uh, lots of barbecue and around a common, air, a common uh, table with everyone picking pieces of, of, of sizzling meat off with chopsticks. And you're all toasting each other with soju, doing shots of soju, which is the liquor of Korea, yeah. about 20% alcohol, and more soju and more soju. And after two hours of that, then everyone has to karaoke, which in Asia, as you know, is no joke. It's part of the evening's entertainment. And then after that, there could be another round and another round. And this is a business dinner. Um, When we would bring journalists from around the world to Hyundai to visit them, we would take them out for these sorts of dinners. And for a Westerner not used to it, man, it can just be exhausting. (laughs) Yeah, especially when we have to get up uh, the next morning at, what, 6.30, 7 o'clock to start to roll and, and head into work the next day. Uh, at 6 a.m., so I could be into work by 7.15, and my bosses, you know, half of my team had already been in a half an hour. So, Ugh, God. We're jo- joined by Frank Ahrens, who is the author of the book Soul Man, uh, former Washington Post uh, reporter, talking about his uh, stint that he had in uh, in Korea. Uh, outside of, of understanding the culture, what were some of the other big changes that you had to make working there. I mean, I mean, when you're the, the head PR guy for a massive international uh, automaker, uh, you're up there. I mean, you're one of the probably the top 15 or 20 people in that company at that point. What are some of the other changes that you had to make? 
Well, one thing I really had to go from it, you know, journalists talk a lot about when they move into PR, they have to learn to be an advocate, right? And so when you're a journalist, when you're working in a newspaper, you are not necessarily working in the best interest of your employer, right? When I was covering the Washington Post, I wrote stories that were frankly not in the best interest of my employer if I had to write about them and, and if they had poor quarterlies, that sorts of thing, sort of thing. But at a, at a, at a uh, corporation, you work in the best interest of your corporation. That's, that's a mindset that I really had to get used to. Yeah. Then another thing journalists have to get used to when they move into a position like that is managing people. You know, journalists can often make fun of managers and management. and They lampoon the middle manager and all the gobbledygook management speak. Well, that's no joke. Management is a science, and it's a respected field, and learning to manage people is hard. Right. And you can't just jump into it. And I learned that, not, not only to mention managing people from a Western point of view, mistakenly, in an Eastern culture. So, for instance, one of the big problems that my colleagues had was what to call me. Right? What, because in the in, in hmm. Hyundai and in the Confucian culture, you refer to your boss by last name and, and, and job title. Right. So I was a director. Director in, in Korea is Esau, so it would be Aaron's Esau, Aaron's uh, Esau. But I screwed everything up by trying to tell people, hey, call me Frank, right? Because I'm a <laughs> Westerner. I'm trying to level things a little bit. Right. And that just blew everything up. So, A, <laughs> it made them uncomfortable. And then, B, they didn't want to call me Frank because, in their minds, that made the director of their team of less esteem than directors huh. of other teams, you see? Yeah. So they felt like they, were, they might be working for something of a lesser uh, director because he was hmm. so informal. And so you have to figure out those things from the jump. And I was six months in swimming. I mean, it was only, it was only thanks to a couple of junior members of my team who spoke great English, who had actually lived in the U.S. a bit, that saved me, quite honestly, probably from getting sacked those first few months. Uh, we're joined by Frank Ahrens. The book is Soul Man. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So kind of jumping ahead, now that you've had that experience, what does going through that for that period of time changing your mindset of working here in the United States? You know, were there things that you learned that you're able to assimilate into working back here in the U.S.? Or, uh, or is it, was it kind of just, you know, a, an end of one experience and you move on to another? No, absolutely. There's, there was a ton to learn. And I think probably the biggest thing to learn, and this is applicable across all cultures, is, is and we talk about it all the time, but you don't really feel it until you experience it in a, in a different culture, and that is trying to see something as the person on the other side of the table sees it, not the way you see it. And a quick example is right before I left Korea, I was having dinner with my team, and I wanted some napkins, and they were in front of a, one of the young women on my team left to me, and I said, hey, can you please pass me a napkin? She gave it to me. Now, she had lived in the U.S. for about a year as a student. She said, did you ask me to pass you the napkin because in your culture it's considered rude to reach in front of somebody who's eating? I said, yes, that's right. And she said, in our culture, it's considered rude to interrupt somebody while they're eating to ask them to give you something, right? So here were two people and two cultures doing what they believed was the most polite thing, in fact, being the rudest thing they could do. And it's, it's the way I kind of came to think about it was the glass test. If you set a drinking glass down on a table between an American and Korean, they both see a glass. They see the same thing. 
but they mean something different. The American thinks, oh, here's a glass. It will soon provide me with a refreshing beverage, right? The Korean sees the glass and says, oh, here is a glass. If there is a superior, a senior sitting at my table, I must fill it and serve him. (laughs) <laughs> you see, yeah, that's that is a change. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a hard thing to get get used to. Um, the company itself, in, in terms of uh, its status in the South Korean economy, uh, I would guess that that Hyundai it was was well up there in the pecking order. Correct. Oh, massive. Yeah. So Samsung, um, so in, in, in South Korea, you have, it's called a chebol, which is Korean for family-owned conglomerate. Okay. And that is the style of the big businesses there. And family-owned conglomerates businesses are not unusual in the West. We have News Corp, we have the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. In Korea, they are so large, and Korea itself is so small, about 50 million people, they have an impact on the country that has not been seen in the U.S. since the days of Getty and Rockefeller, hundred some years ago. So in 2010 or 12, 12 or 13, whatever it was, I looked it up, if you put together the Samsung Chebol and the Hyundai Motor Group Chebol, those two conglomerates accounted for 50% of all the earnings on the Korean Stock Exchange. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And so, and then after that, you've got LG, and then you've got other big ones like SK Telecom and so yeah. forth. And so each of these chaebol are made up of 20, 30, 40 businesses. Many are related to the main business, but, but not always. Right. They're better now than they used to be. Uh, but yeah, the impact is extraordinary. So then, the, the, what do you see as the future for Hyundai? Because it, it's been uh, a solid rise for that company as an automaker uh, here in the United States. When you think about you know when they first got started, I, I think most people figured it was just a, you know a low end vehicle. You 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 were buying what you get, and they've kind of changed it and they've tried to get a little bit more luxury in their vehicles right now. No, absolutely. One thing that's hard to to, to remember about Hyundai is that they only started the car company in 1967. It's a pretty young company. And they only hit the U.S. in the 80s. And for the first uh, 10 or 15 years here in the States, they were kind of a joke. They they were cheap, and they were poorly made, and they really reached their nadir here in the late 90s. But then uh, the current chairman took over from the founding chairman, his father, and said, we must make a commitment to quality. And throughout the 2000s, they made a significant um, uh, commitment to creating high quality volume cars. Mm. And uh, now they are among, in, in the most recent uh, initial quality survey came out a couple of months ago, uh, Kia was number one, Porsche was number two, and Hyundai was number three. Not bad. So now, what's the next step? Well, the aspiration now they have is to take their vehicles up market. Mm-hmm. And just a few months ago, they split off their top two vehicles, the Genesis uh, cars, to create a separate luxury line, like Lexus and like, um, like Acura. And so the plan, though, is to continue to elevate the entire brand. So the end game, they want their most expensive cars to be as good as Audi and their least less expensive cars to be as good as Volkswagen, the pre-Volkswagen scandal, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Do you think that they can do that? I mean, with the, with the wide range of cars that that are here in the United States, uh, you know, the number of automakers. And and when you're talking luxury, obviously you're paring it down a little bit, but even some of the U.S. automakers have tried to really up their game in terms of the luxury market uh, and, and, and produce, you know, cars that have a price point that are into the 50s and 60s, 60s in terms of thousands of dollars uh, and and get the consumer to buy into that. Right. Well, it's difficult. Well, one thing that, that Hyundai is going to do is 
and I saw this when I was there, the, the, the new, the second generation Hyundai Genesis, which is meant to compete against the BMW 5 Series and the Mercedes E-Class, um, runs hmm. the road even with those guys in terms of performance and features and so forth, but comes in fifteen to $20,000 cheaper. And that's yeah. one thing that Hyundai's going to do. Now, are you going to get the brand snobs who want to pay an extra $20,000 to get that three-pointed star on their hood? No, you're not. But you are going to get, a, a, I think, a smart luxury and premium consumer. Um, Hyundai's market share here is four, four and a half, five percent or so. Uh, and so there's, there's, there's room to grow. The, the thing that has dinged Hyundai over the past year and a half or so is having a sedan-heavy lineup, and now all of a sudden everyone right. in the States wants a CUV or an SUV. Right. And so they did great with their last-generation Sonata and Elantra when those segments were very hot. But now everyone wants a little SUV. And so they've got more vehicles in the works, but they're a little late to the game on that. And so now they have to catch up. How much does a company like Hyundai, how much are they affected by what happened with Volkswagen? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting because when I was at Hyundai, we had our own uh, sort of mini scandal. Um, we had in 2012, we had to restate mileage uh, estimates on a right. few hundred thousand vehicles, yeah. dropping them an average of about two miles per gallon. Because, as you may know, the U.S. is the only country in the world where the, where the, where the government doesn't test vehicles. It gives guidelines to the manufacturers. They test it, submit it to the EPA, and the EPA does random checks. And the guidelines are tough, and that there's a lot of wiggle room in there for what they call engineering judgment. And in the EPA's check, they estimated that one of the tests that Hyundai ran was not up to their guidance. And so mm -hmm. we had to shave a couple miles per gallon off a few cars. Um, but but the, the way that we sort of answered that was... As soon as we announced that, we announced debit cards to all the people who had, yeah. had, bought, who had bought those cars, and there's free gas to make up for that. Um, so that, however, and listen, when you're in the auto industry, you never root against the industry leaders. A Volkswagen is, is a mighty brand, and they are just is a tremendous makers of vehicles. So you never have schadenfreude with the industry leader, because you never want to see them go down. But the scandal that Volkswagen is, is still undergoing is just epic and, and completely unexpected. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing that was amazing about it was, you know, every other automaker is doing diesel cars, right? And they have this one way of making the engineering working work, and, and, and Volkswagen had another way. They weren't using that way. And none of the engineers could figure out how VW was doing it. Right. And our engineers, the impression was, well, they're VW. Their engineers just must be better. And that was the <laughs> ethos and sort of the mythos around VW engineers. We find out now it was a cheat, and they're having to, to pay the price for it. Um, VW cars, the, the Korean government, is uh, engaged in, in legal action with the ones that have been sold there. Um, you know, VW sales, listen, remember a few years ago when Toyota had the, the runaway unintended acceleration issues? Well, they were ding. They got a lot of bad press for a year. They had a big fine to pay. But, you know, within a couple of years, they're back to number one globally. So VW and, you know, VW's fines are going to be much larger, um, yeah. and it's going to be more ongoing. Um, but, yeah, it certainly has an impact for every other automaker. There's just additional scrutiny by the consumer on automakers' claims now. Uh, you also talk a little bit uh, in the book about uh, South Korea and 
kind of its position in the Asian economy. And, and I bring that up, obviously, because China is seemingly a, almost a daily story now uh, with their growth and, you know, it trimming down and what China needs to do. Japan is always on the on the radar uh, for the growth that they have. Where does South Korea kind of fit into that mix? Hmm. Well, I, it's, it's a good question. And I like to, even though it's sort of the dark horse pick, I like to push my chips onto Korea. And, and I say this for a couple of reasons. So first off, it's a democracy, uh, like Japan is and like China is not. So that gives it, that gives it a, you know, one step ahead in terms of innovation and press freedom and freedom and, and stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unlike Japan and China, Korea has great relations with its regional neighbors. Um, and there's no antagonism with South China Sea Islands and things yeah. like that. Um, it has an incredibly uh, well-educated populace. Um, and I think, it, because it developed about 15 years after Japan, it has watched the Japan stagnation uh, over the past 20 years. And I think it, Korea has taken notes. Korea understands and has under this current president and, and will be going forward that it needs to, it can no longer rely completely on the chaebol which are like the Zabatsu in, Korea, in Japan, the huge brands Panasonic and Sony, that can tend to uh, ossification over many years. And if you just rely on these, uh, on these companies, you're really putting all your chips in one area. So Korea needs to create a more risk-taking, venture capital, startup-style service economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think Korea has, has, the, um, has the understanding it needs to make that pivot. And then finally, and this is sort of an unexpected thing, but there's the wild card of North Korea. Okay? I, I was just going to bring that up, so I'll let you go into that. Yep. Yep. So North Korea is a thuggish Stalinist uh, regime that exists only to continue to exist. Yeah. Um, and it will fall one day. Um, it could be five minutes from now. It could be 15, 20 years from now. Who knows? And who knows how it will collapse. But when it does, um, it will become a unified Korean peninsula, and that will be under the rule of Seoul. There will be one, essentially South Korea will be Korea. Now, the absorption of 20 or 22 million uh, lesser educated uh, lesser nourished people into the world's 10th or 12th largest economy, South Korea, is going to be a burden for a couple of generations, just like it was with East and, and, and West Germany, but more so, because the East Germans were well-fed and well-educated. Right. This is going to be more of a burden. However, it also it will give South Korea access to um, natural resources, which are mainly in the north part of the peninsula, which they haven't had. Um, so it will reduce their net imports of natural resources. It will give them a workforce of um, people who do less lower-skilled jobs, which South Koreans don't want to do now, and are currently importing uh, Indonesians and Philippines and, and others and Vietnamese to do those jobs. Hmm. And the North Koreans are younger and have more children. South Korea, like many of more mature societies, and certainly in Asia, is an aging population that's not having as many children. So this will be a bit of a, um, a sad to the demographic bond, bomb, bomb, B-O-M-B. So it's not going to be easy for a couple of generations, but I think in the, in, the, in the long run, it will certainly benefit the country. What about the, the potential role, and it doesn't seem like uh, it, whoever gets into the office in the White House uh, come November, that the TPP, uh, you know, as, as it has been pushed push forward by President Obama, it's not going to be the same. Is, is South Korea... Uh, 
involved? Are they are they all in on, on setting up some sort of relationship like that? So uh, South Korea is not currently in the TPP okay. as it stands. They would like to be yeah. uh, at some point. But the TPP, as you say, looks DOA um, yeah. in its current form. Certainly if uh, the Republican nominee is elected, and, and even if the Democratic nominee, there'll probably be a renegotiation uh, of some sort. Um, Korea and the U.S. right now have a very good um, free trade agreement that went yeah. into effect in 2012, I think it was. And despite the the, the incorrect facts and, and bombastic rhetoric you hear from one of the presidential nominees, it in fact is a good thing for both the U.S. and for Korea, and will continue to to improve. Um, Korea is watching this election very closely because they are concerned um, about what happens to trade. Uh, China is Korea's number one trading partner. I think Japan may be second. We're number three or so, uh, but we're very important. And then the relationship between Korea and the U.S. forged since the Korean War is unique, really, for the U.S. Uh, and means a great deal to Korea. So, yes, they are closely watching it. Great to have you on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you. The, the I guess the interesting thing to, to wrap up on is uh, what was the experience like for your wife? So Rebecca was there for uh, two years, and she was working at the embassy, uh, working in the consular window, uh, uh, first off, granting visas to Koreans who wanted to come to the U.S., and those things are mills, man. She would do 200 interviews a day in Korean <laughs> oh, God. Um, for oh. people who wanted to come to the U.S. to go to school or, or whatever. And then after that, she worked for um, something called American Citizen Services, which is helping out Americans in foreign countries who get in trouble. Some get in, caught, put in jail. Yeah. Some get lost, and she, she connected lost sons with fathers, and that part is very rewarding. Um, so, uh, But yeah, embassy life, and then after two years, we both only planned to be there for two years, but then uh, Hyundai wanted to re-up me, and Rebecca got reposted to Indonesia, yeah. um, which is a six-and-a-half-hour flight from Seoul, and so we commuted for several months oh, uh, until our baby daughter came along and found out that wasn't really going to work anymore, and so then we both came back to the States. So you're doing uh, what now? Uh, my day job is a public relations executive at a small PR and lobbying shop back here in D.C. We now have two daughters. And as of today, I uh, suppose I'm an author. Yes, you are. Congra <laughs> Congratulations on the book. It was really uh, really interesting to go through. And it, it is. The interesting thing, I think, is is that you know we don't really get to see it firsthand unless you're over there. And, and for the most Americans, they don't get the un – I mean, we see Hyundai as, as an automaker, and that's, right. about, and that's about it in terms of South Korea. Uh, so be, being able to understand a little bit more is very interesting. And obviously the culture was, was quite an experience for you to deal with. Thank you, Frank. Greatly appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Frank Aarons. The book is Soul Man, a memoir of cars, culture, crisis, and the unexpected hilarity inside a Korean corporate titan. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.